Thank you so much for getting out of bed early and uh, on a Saturday and being here. Um, how many of you have done Build or Wellspring before? So you can kind of look around and see that, look, this is something that people do over and over. Let's, let's do this. Who has taken, um, not counting this year, but before this year, who has taken Build or Wellspring two, uh, two times, at least two times? Hands up. Keep your hands up. Who's taken Build or Wellspring three times? And then the, the girls are going to start dropping off here in a moment because the build has been going on a long, lot longer. Four times? That, and that's how many years Wellspring's been going on and we're left to the two leaders here. And there, there's only two guys. Anybody taken build five years or more? I might have. Yeah, you might have. <laughs> You're kind of like furniture here, Jeff. Yeah. We've been doing build for 10 years now and uh, Wellspring for, is this the fifth year? So, yeah. So thank you very much for getting up and for coming, for uh, just making the sacrifice. Um, we have um, about 16 more of these, though, or 15 or however many it is. So starting is one thing, finishing is another, right? Uh, so we want to make sure that we finish well, but thank you so much for coming. Uh, as you, some have asked already, uh, do the guys and the girls always meet together? Uh, the answer to that is no. But the first one of the year, we want to because we want to just kind of lay out what Build and Wellspring are and how they fit in the context of Grace Bible Church and what Grace Bible Church is all about. And so that's why we just kind of in one shot hit the guys and the girls together. Um, towards the end of our morning, uh, you ladies will split off and you'll go down the hall to the library and um, they'll talk with you some more. And guys will stay put and we'll finish out some things here as well. We try to start at 645 and for the guys every week and we finish at 9 15 ladies you start at 7 and finish at 9 right so two weeks from now you ladies will not come to this room you will come to the library and you do not have to come at 6 45 next time ladies you can come at 7 so that 15 hour or 15 hours <laughs> 15 extra minutes of sleep may seem like 15 hours but anyway all right well before we begin um oh one other thing if you do not if you did not pick up one of the handouts at the back, guys, you need to get one of those. So, Eric, can you just kind of get the handout? Is there any guy that needs one of those? If you need something to write on, you need to get it. Do we need one, you need one up here? Anybody else? Any ladies? Do, ladies, Were they already in your notebook, ladies? Yeah, are there any ladies who need one of the handouts to take notes on? So you all got what you need to take notes on. Okay. All right. Well, if you've got your Bible ready and you've got that handout, the only thing we need to do is we need to pray because we don't want to look at God's Word without first uh, praying and asking for help and drawing near to Him through prayer. So let's do that. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this new year, uh, for Build and Wellspring, Lord, and thank you for these um, many men and women who... Um, want to grow in their relationship with you. They want to grow in their understanding of your word. And they want to, um, I pray, Lord, grow to understand how your word helps to grow a relationship with you and how drawing near to the word of God um, is all about knowing the God of the word, knowing a person, knowing a being, knowing you, loving you, fearing you, worshiping you, delighting in you, enjoying you. Lord, that's what we must um, gain if we are going to open our Bibles and draw near to you with our Bibles open. So Lord, would you please, even this morning as we do that, will you accomplish that? May we rejoice to discover the God that you are, 
as you have revealed yourself through words in a book to us. Lord, thank you so much. You didn't have to do that. Creation has made it clear to us that you exist, but our hardness of heart, um, all we do in that hardness is reject you and suppress that truth. But with the power of your spirit and with your um, specific revelation about yourself in the Bible, now our hearts have been changed by your grace and we now can know you as you have revealed yourself to us. I pray, God, that we would, for the rest of our lives, um, hunger and thirst for you in your word. And that in so doing, God, we would be changed. We would be different men. We'd be different women. We'd be godly. We'd be um, consumed with who you are as our God and Savior. So, Lord, draw near to us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about the vision and the purpose of Grace Bible Church and basically how Build and Wellspring just fits within that, okay? So, this morning, if you'll take your sheet and we'll take a look at that, we'll just start making our way through it. I just, there's three main points this morning on your outline. You've got a lot of uh, an extensive outline. Um, by the way, if you're technologically savvy, we can make sure that you get the sent to you PDF before the Saturdays. So if you want to take notes on them electronically, you can do that. Uh, just let me know that. Um, that can be arranged for you. But three points today. We'll talk about the biblical vision of God that we have as a church. We'll talk about, secondly, the gospel purpose in Christ that we have. And then thirdly, we'll talk about build and wellspring and how that all fits into what Grace Bible Church is all about. Okay. So let's start first with the biblical vision of God. We, we have this statement. It's on our bulletin every week. You see it at the top. It says a biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ. And all I'm going to do is I'm just going to unpack that for you. What we mean by that as elders we will run through a bunch of different scriptures to show you that. Okay, so we'll start first with the biblical vision of God. What do we mean by a biblical vision of God? So I'm going to just take each one of those words, but I'm going to take them backwards. Start with the word God. Um, by God, we mean the, the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And uh, the whole point of what we're after here is if we interact with the Bible, but we miss God, we failed miserably. And I don't know if you have a category for that, of understanding that, but it is possible to interact with the Word of God and miss God. One of the things that Jesus said to the Pharisees, uh, to the Jews around him, in John chapter 5 is, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. Well, what did they think of Jesus? They didn't want him. And so um, it is possible to have God's word and to miss him. It's possible. That's the nature of sin within us that we would miss God. So we want to put our sights on God. Second, the word vision. That means we want to see God. We want to see him. We want to gaze upon him. We want to set our sights upon him in scripture. And then we want to turn and we want to look out into our world and we want to see the world as he sees the world. We want to um, see ourselves the way that God sees us according to scripture. So it's a vision of God that we want to see him, but then we also want to see everything as he sees it. Um, Biblical. What do we mean by the word biblical vision? It's, this is a vision of God that comes only through this written revelation right here. We're not talking about any other visions. We're not talking anything like Daniel had or Isaiah had. We're talking about 
this biblical vision. We're setting our sights on these words in this text, and then we're going to look at our world through uh, what these words say to us. We want to see the world as these words say, uh, explain the world and ourselves to us. So it is a vision of God that comes only through Scripture. We want to see God by Scripture. So it is a biblical vision of God. So we're setting our sights on him. Now, let's talk about this God that we're talking about. Our, um, our biblical vision of God breaks down into three, like a little triad. And it's Trinitarian. Um, we talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Uh, and the first one is God and his glory, the glory of God. And this is where we would locate the Father. But we're not trying to deny that the Son has glory. He does. The Spirit is a glorious being as well. Um, and one of the things that I would encourage you to do, I do this every year, at least I try to encourage you every year, if you're going to start reading your Bible um, all the way through soon, uh, starting and picking a new plan, just look for the word glory in Scripture, circle it, write it out in the margin, keep a journal with you, and write just down every location of the word glory, and watch just how the Bible uses the word glory from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It'll be one of the richest studies that you'll ever have. The glory of God is the, the theme of Scripture above all other themes. Even the gospel. Because the gospel brings ultimately what? God glory. The fact that God would be glorified is the ultimate theme in Scripture. Um, it's the umbrella theme under which everything else hangs. And so we want to be about the glory of God. Um, and the cross of Christ, that'll be the second one, and the transformation of life that the Spirit brings. So we're talking about the glory of God here. What does the word glory mean? Here's what the word glory means. It's God's weightiness, His weightiness, His splendor, His worth, His impressiveness. Another way of saying it is, is it's just His overwhelmingness. Um, the, one of the key Old Testament words for it is, uh, weighty, but we don't translate it as weighty. We translate it as glory. But the idea is he's just weighty. He just, you just crumple under his greatness, his massiveness, his, his impressiveness. But that overwhelmingness is expressed through brilliant, radiant light. Brilliant, radiant light. So it is God's weightiness expressed through brilliant radiance. Light, blinding light. You see this over and over in the passages in the Bible when, when any man uh, comes across God in his glory being revealed. We'll look at that in just a moment. So there's a sense in which God's glory in um, the Old Testament and New Testament, there's a sense in which God's glory is that which he uses to communicate himself when he is meeting with a human being one-on-one. Um, John 1.18 says, No man... Um, has seen God at any time. No man has ever fully looked upon God, gazed upon him, and survived. Um, Exodus 33:20, we'll look at this in just a moment. Um, God said, "No man can see me and live. But what God does over and over in the Bible is He communicated himself to men at different times in a weighty, impressive, radiant form that man was capable of soaking in, and it nearly killed them. Who's left standing after they see the glory of God before them? What do they all say afterwards? Why am I still alive? I should be dead. 
Manoah and his wife, the mother and father of Samson, when they realized that the one who was, they were entertaining was God, they can't believe they're still alive. John in the New Testament, when he sees the vision, he's down on the ground as a dead man. God has to raise him up. Peter, when he's fishing, um, and he's been fishing all night, and he's caught nothing, and a guy from the shore says, hey, throw the net over on the other side. And then there's so many fish. I mean, how, think about that. No fish everywhere we've been fishing. Just put the net on the other side of the boat. You see, the God of creation has told all of the fish to get over to that one side. And they are obeying the God of creation and swimming into the net. And the boat starts to sink. Peter gets out. He comes out on shore and he falls down as a dead man. And he says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Uh, When God reveals himself in these kinds of ways, um, it's not an easy thing. Man doesn't go, oh, nice to meet you, God. Um, it's It's a life, nearly life ending time. Moses was dropped to his knees by the glory of God. Moses was glowing with the radiant presence of God when he came down from the mountain. So let's look at an Old Testament passage on this. It's the best one, I think. Um, Exodus 33. Turn back there with me. Here's the context in Exodus 33. We'll start in at verse 12. Here's the context. Um, Israel has just, they're in the wilderness. Um, Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. They don't know where he's at. And Israel decides, hey, let's make um, a god for ourselves. So they all take off their earrings and their bracelets of gold. They throw it in the fire. Um, Aaron's explanation of what happened is, is they threw it in the fire and out came a calf. Um, No, you fashioned it and graved it. But yeah, I understand what you were trying to do there. Um, And they have just done that. And God says, that's it. I'm done. I'm not going with you anymore. You guys can go to the land, but I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel with you. Chapter 32, verse 35. The Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf and which Aaron had made. In verse 34, he said, my angel shall go before you. But nevertheless, I'm not going because I'll just end up killing you all if I go with you. And now at chapter 33, Moses is distraught. How can we go without you? And he says to him in God, he says to God in verse 12, Moses said to, to Yahweh, see, you may say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have found you by name and um, known you by name and have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said to him, my presence shall go with you. I will give you rest. And then he said, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all of the other people who are upon the face of the earth? What is Moses saying? What's the difference between Israel and all of the other people on the face of the earth? What's the difference? Yahweh. And that's it. Yahweh, uh, Israel was not picked by God because they stood out and had their own unique above average characteristics that the rest of the nations did not have. They were as wicked as anybody else. But what made them different was God. And Moses said, you must be with us. How else will we be distinguished from anybody else? The Lord said, verse 17, 
I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then Yahweh said, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock. That's a great statement. God somehow has located himself somewhere over by this rock. And there's a spot over by him. And it will come about, verse 22, while my glory is passing by, while my radiant, impressive, brilliant light that is overwhelming passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take my hand away and you shall see me fading away from you. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. That's the Old Testament example leading off early in the pages of the Bible of the radiant, impressive, glorious splendor of God. Isaiah 6 is another great passage in the Old Testament. There's New Testament teaching on God's glory in Jesus. John 1.14 is all about we saw his glory, we beheld his glory. Um, in John chapter 12, we'll look at some of these in a moment. Um, John says that the one that Isaiah saw was Jesus' glory. Remember, Smed preached on that. In Luke 9, uh, it's the, the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory of God in the sun comes bursting out of him, and Peter, James, and John see it. There's future glory for Jesus, glory for Jesus in judgment, glory of Jesus is seen as he gathers his elect across the world at the end. Chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 31, Jesus has glory in the sheep and goat judgment. And ultimately, Revelation 21, the end of the book of your Bible, is all about the glory of God in the new Jerusalem. Now, let me pair a couple of these up for you. We looked at Exodus 33. Go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 real quick. And we'll take a look at another day when some followers of Jesus were on a mountain and radiant splendor broke out. Luke 9, verse 28. Some eight days after these things, Jesus took along Peter and John and James and they went up on a mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. There's the radiant splendor of God in Jesus. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory or in splendor, were speaking with Jesus of, about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what it was he was saying. Like, somehow this glorious one who's emanating glory is somehow on the same level as Moses and Elijah? Moses is the one who said to this God, show me your glory. How can you put Moses on his level? And that's when, while he was saying this, verse 34, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. They were afraid as they entered the cl cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. 
And they kept silent. They reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Okay, you have your Old Testament parallel of Moses up on a mountain and God revealing his glory to him. In the New Testament, up on a mountain, the Son of God in all of his glory with his followers revealing himself to him. Um, Another pairing in the Old Testament would be Isaiah 6 and John 12, verse 37 to 41, uh, where John says that that glory that Isaiah saw was the glory of Messiah Jesus. So from cover to cover in your Bible, this is the theme. The glory of God, the weighty, impressive, radiant splendor of God revealing itself, himself in that. Practically speaking, so what? So what? The Bible reveals that. So what? Do you want to glorify God with your life? I'm sure you want to, right? You want to be glorifying to God and you want to glorify God. You want him to be seen to be the great and glorious God that he is in your life. The the way to do that is first and foremost to position yourself daily before God's word to drink in his glory. How can you glorify God if you're not soaking in his glory that he has revealed of himself in scripture? Watching him in all of his glory from one page to the next. So position yourself often and daily before the Bible to drink in the glory of God. As you do that, it will greatly impact your ability to glorify God. Imagine what it would be like to try to glorify God with your living if you never soaked in how glorious he is. That's kind of your fuel, is it not? Moses' cry must be every believer's cry, even today. Show me your glory. That's a great thing to pray when you open up your Bible in the morning. God, show me your glory. I know I'm in Second Chronicles chapter 18. I have no idea what's going on. I can't remember from yesterday who these people are. But would you show me your glory? The men and women who are most equipped and most effective for God in this world and throughout all of redemptive history were men and women who hungered to see the glory of God. Be that kind of man. Be that kind of woman. For God's sake. Let's talk about the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. So we, our, our triad for the, glory, uh, for the biblical vision of God, the glory of God, the cross of Christ, and the transformation of life by the Spirit. Secondly, the cross of Christ. Christ's death is related to God's glory. Did you know that? The glory of God in Scripture is actually inseparably tied to the blood that is shed by a substitute in sacrifice from your earliest pages all the way through to the end. The glory of God is tied to the blood that is shed by a substitute in sacrifice. In the Old Testament, remember in Exodus, God in all of his glory was enveloping a mountain. Mount Sinai, he is up there and there is clouds all around it and the instruction to all of Israel is don't even let the animals get near to the mountain because they'll die. God is overwhelming this mountain. Peals of thunder, lightning, clouds going up there and the only one who can make his way up there is Moses. And God is just consuming a mountain in all of his glory. The ground is quaking. And then God says through Moses in the law that he wanted to put that glorious presence that is swallowing up a mountain, and he says to Moses, build me a tent and put my tent in the middle of all of your tents because that's where I'm going to put my glory. That makes no sense. 
He is swallowing up a mountain with his glorious presence, but he says, I want to dwell among you guys. Make me a tent. And in that tent, over and over and over for 40 years in the wilderness, and then for countless other years until David starts to gather materials and his son Solomon builds a temple. And then even in the temple, all the way through to Jesus' day, over and over and over and over in that tent and in that um, temple, blood is everywhere. So all God in all of his radiant glory wants to be in a tent where there is blood shed everywhere. And not just any kind of blood, but the blood of a substitute. And not just any kind of substitute, an innocent substitute, an animal who for centuries, never, uh, over and over, uh, the worshiper would bring an animal and, and it didn't commit the sin. It was in the place of the worshiper bringing a substitute, an innocent lamb. God's intent is that where his glory is, there would be a blood of a substitute, an innocent substitute, sacrificed in the place of the worshiper. You see, there's a fusion of God's glory and a substitute's blood, and it reached its revelational climax where? With Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the ultimate substitute, and his blood was shed for the glory of God. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 18. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. And the writer of Hebrews is referring back to that old covenant. For when every commandment, verse 19 of Hebrews 9, had been spoken by Moses to all of the people according to the law... He took blood, the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all of the vessels of the ministry with the blood. You see blood everywhere. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these things. Was that tent that God put his glory in, was that the real thing? No, we're told. In fact, Moses was told it's a copy. I gave you a pattern of the copy of what God was experiencing in heaven. And, and, and the tent was a, was a copy. And it was necessary for the copies of the things in heavens to be cleansed with this blood. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. Isn't it interesting? He wasn't crucified in the temple. Because that's not the, the destination temple for him. The destination place where the altar is, is, is the right hand of God. It's heaven. He's that better sacrifice. He didn't enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would uh, offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been revealed to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he'll appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. This means that you can't talk about the glory of God for very long without getting to what? 
the gospel. The shed blood of a substitute, an innocent substitute, Jesus, for sinners. You can't talk about the glory of God without getting to forgiveness of sin, the the putting away of sin, bearing the sins of many, the, the wrath of God satisfied. What are we not saying by the cross of Christ? Here's what we're not saying. We're not interested in merely a cross. We're not interested in merely in a Christless cross. We're not fixated on all of the Roman crosses on which many men died in years past. Um, We're also not trying to diminish the empty tomb or the resurrection. We're not trying to focus on the cross to the exclusion of the empty tomb. What we're recognizing in Scripture, though, is that substitutionary sacrifice has been there all along. The Old Testament type for this is Leviticus 16. It's the Day of Atonement. You can read about that. The New Testament teaching is is Hebrews 9, what we just looked at, and many other passages as well. Let me give you a key theological phrase. You can write this down to help you remember what we're talking about in the cross of Christ. Are you ready? Penal substitutionary atonement. It's a theological phrase. It sounds like you know what you're talking about if you can throw those words out. Um, But they're very important. Penal, like the word penalty, just take off the T and the Y. Substitutionary. I'd spell that for you, but it might be embarrassing for me in front of you all. Atonement, okay? Penal substitutionary atonement. What are we saying with that? It's a great outline for the gospel. There is a penalty for sin. That's what the word penal means. You've been penalized. There's a penalty for sin, and it must be paid. However, it can only be paid by a substitute. And not just any kind of substitute, but an innocent substitute, not just any kind of a sinless substitute, like an animal was a sinless substitute, but but the Son of God sinless substitute. And all of that for the purpose of what? Atonement, or taking away sin, taking away guilt, taking away shame, satisfying the wrath of God, reconciling us to God, making us one with God. A penalty must be paid by an innocent substitute who is Jesus so that our sins can be atoned for. That's what we mean in the cross of Christ. We want to set our sights on the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. By the way, as I look out at some of you who I know are from Camelback, does this sound familiar? Yeah, I stole it. I just, but I, just for credit's sake, I was there when we formed it, so I was a part of it. Okay. And I asked him, and he said I could bring it and use it. So anyway, we uh, elders love this here. So um, anyway, practically speaking, what does this mean, though? Um, position yourself daily before the Bible to drink in penal substitutionary atonement. The cross of Christ, the, the blood shed by a substitute. Boast in it. I love Galatians chapter 6. We need to be more like Paul in this. Galatians 6 I believe it's verses 14 and 15. Is that right? Galatians 6, 14 and 15. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Look, one of the main things that we should just be doing as Christians is boasting, glorifying the the cross of Jesus Christ. So position yourself daily in the Bible to remember the gospel, to rehearse the gospel, to locate it. Even in the Old Testament, as a sinless animal substitute, is, is being, uh, its blood is being shed. This, the blood of goats and bulls does not take away sin. But nevertheless, God did forgive them as they looked by faith, not at that animal, but as one who would come. 
We're just on the post-cross side, and we look back with faith at the one who has been revealed. Um, Position yourself daily to drink it in. Now, verse 15 in, in Galatians 6 talks about a new creation, and that leads us to the third part of the triad, and this is the Holy Spirit's part, the transformation of life by the Spirit. Um, This is where we talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. So we want to set our sights on God's glory in the cross of Jesus Christ as we are transformed in life by the Holy Spirit. Okay? That is the role of the Holy Spirit. His role is to apply the work of Christ on the cross to our lives and save us. That is his job. When that takes place... A massive salvation occurs in the sinner's life. A massive salvation occurs. This idea that you could be saved and and that you would get fire insurance, that you wouldn't have to go to hell anymore, but you really might not change a whole lot in the way that you live and think and talk and just do life and do relationships. That is a puny salvation that the Bible does not talk about. When you've got the glory of God focused on the death and the shed blood of his son, when the third member of the Trinity picks up all of that and applies it to the life, you change. Everything changes in the life of a sinner. It is a massive salvation that occurs. Not merely fire insurance. He is the pledge of our inheritance. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. He's the down payment. You want to know for sure that you've got salvation in all of its fullness, including heaven and, and glory with Jesus forever. You want your down payment to be sure that you've got that. It's the Spirit of God. One of the members of the Godhead became your surety, your down payment to assure you that you are saved. That's crazy. Not as crazy as the other member of the Godhead shedding his blood in your place. It's amazing. So the Holy Spirit's ministry is to bring about a new birth being born again, which ushers in a whole new life. And penal substitutionary atonement in the hands of the Holy Spirit does that. Uh, We could talk about salvation and how life has changed this way. We could talk about salvation in the past tense, uh, that we um, have been saved. Since penalty, as we look back on our lives, as uh, all my sins that I've committed have been, the penalty has been paid. That's amazing. You can turn around then and look to your future and think, and all I have to look forward to is heaven with Jesus. It's amazing. What, a, what an amazing salvation offered to me. But then we're standing where? Now. We're living now. Does the gospel speak to the past of your life and to the future of your life? Yes. Gloriously so. But the transformation of life by the Spirit is not for necessarily only for your past or for your future. It's for today. It's for today. You are being saved even now in your sanctification process. When you are being saved now, when the Bible speaks about you were saved, you will be saved, and you are being saved, it's not meant to, to call into question whether or not you were really saved in the past. It's to talk about it just in the way that God talks about it. Get used to talking about salvation, the sure thing that it is, in three tenses. Because your Bible does. Past, future, and present. And the Spirit's role in that is the daily power that He provides in overcoming the power of sin in your life. Transforming you more and more into the image of Jesus. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Here is a great summary verse for the Spirit. Even verse 17 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, 
with unveiled face, and that's the contrast, if you look in the context, he's talking about Moses who did veil his face. He didn't want the Israelites to see that that glory was fading away from his face. We have unveiled faces. We are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into the same image from one level of glory to the next level of glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The one who is moving you from one level of transformation to the next level of transformation to the next level of transformation in your life as a Christian is the Spirit of God. I encourage you, I know, I know some ladies who are sitting together this year, and one of the things that they're going to look for is the ministry and the role, the person of the Holy Spirit, and who the Spirit of God is and what He does. There's a lot of talk out there in our Christian evangelicalism, and we give a lot of credit to the Spirit for things that we do, or that things that happen in our lives, that we, you know, the Spirit led me to say this to that person, the Spirit led me to go over there, and the Spirit put this on my heart, and and we talk that way, but I'm not sure we're connecting with everything the Bible says the Spirit does. What if the main idea in the New Testament is that the Spirit of God, by His power, just transforms you and gives you power to say no to sin? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Spirit's leading in our lives, that He does that in our lives. Right? So sometimes we can just kind of get off, and we can talk about all the things that God does that aren't in the Bible that we think He does, and then we miss end up talk, We don't end up talking about the things that God does do that are in Scripture. So study the Spirit. In the Old Testament, there was revelation of the Spirit. There was this anticipation about the Spirit. There's evidence even in the Old Testament that he would have this radical transforming ministry. You see this with King Saul. The Holy Spirit came upon him with the prophets. And remember, he, it says he became another man. 1 Samuel 10.6 Then the Spirit of Yahweh will come upon you mightily, uh, Saul, and you shall prophesy with them, and you shall be changed into another man. Evidence that, an anticipation that as the Spirit came upon him in that moment, in an Old Testament way, he was not like the same old guy he was. Now that's not regeneration, okay? But that's evidence and anticipation that things are going to change. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, these are God's promises to the house of Israel and Judah for a new heart in the new covenant. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit linked with that. Ezekiel chapter 37, you have dead bones that are brought to life to give hope for Israel in the future. Ezekiel 37, 14, God says, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your land. Um, there is Old Testament anticipation for a fuller ministry of the spirit that had not yet come. Uh, go to John chapter 14. Here's one of the simplest passages to understand that will help you understand um, what the Spirit is doing in the New Testament compared to the Old Testament. John 14, Jesus is last night with his disciples. John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And who is that helper? The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But now watch this. Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. Pentecost has not yet come. And he says this to his disciples who are believing in an Old Testament way yet, even in this passage. Okay? You understand that statement? What does he say? You know him. So did an Old Testament believer know the Spirit of God? Yes, Jesus said they did. You know him because, why? He abides with you. Okay, so Old Testament salvation, the Spirit of God abided with them. That would be the language to use. But notice how he finishes it. 
and he will be what? In you. Now there's the New Testament, New Covenant ministry of the Spirit of God that we get to taste as Gentiles under the New Covenant, um, but whom Israel will have the glory someday of experiencing as well. John, here's more New Testament teaching on the role of the Spirit. John 3, verses 1 to 8, you must be born again. Jesus said that to Nicodemus. By the way, that's Old Testament view of salvation. You must be born again. That's not a New Testament idea that all of a sudden came on Johnny come lately with Jesus. That's the way it's always been. You must be born again. Um, Titus chapter 3. Go to Titus chapter 3. Let's look at another verse on the Spirit's work of causing us to be born again. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. I'm sorry, you notice I'm not waiting for you as you turn because we need to keep moving right along. We also once were foolish ourselves, Paul says, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. And He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but He saved us according to His mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration, there it is, being born again, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now watch this Trinitarian verse. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Who's the he? Who God the Father poured the Spirit out on us through Jesus. Listen, the Godhead unites together for the salvation of man. How can you not change when that God, that triune Godhead, pulls together like he does and salvation occurs? Practically speaking, what does this mean? Uh, there's other passages there for you. Romans 8 is really important. If you live by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. You're in this mixed condition. We'll talk about that over the year. Um, the role of the Spirit of God in your life right now is that you would put to death the deeds of your body. Your, your physical body has sin indwelling it, and you, by the power of the Spirit, need to be putting that to death by the Spirit's work. Galatians 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? No, of course not. Having begun by the Spirit, you continue in your sanctification with the power of the Spirit, and so forth. Practically speaking, daily position yourself to see your need for the Holy Spirit in Scripture. You need to come before this. You need the Holy Spirit more than ever, more than you would ever think of. It's easy. He is the neglected, forgotten, abused, distorted one by Christians. How much more so do you really need to know what the Word of God says about the Spirit of God and who He is, what His ministry is in your life? He gets all of the focus for gifting. Praise God, He gifts the church, the body of Christ. But we should not miss His foundational work of applying the cross of Christ in time to a sinner to save them. And we certainly shouldn't miss His power on a daily basis for sanctification. Plead for fullness of the Spirit in your life for that, for continual transformation. Give thanks to God for his spirit in your life. All right, so there's the biblical vision of God. We want to set our sights on what the Bible says about the glory of God in the cross of Jesus for the transformation of life by the power of the spirit. There's your message of the Bible in one sense. That's one way it's incomplete. There's much more in the Bible that, that needs to be said. But that's one way of summing up what the Bible is about. The glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ to change people by the Holy Spirit. Now, that leads us, number two, to our gospel purpose in Christ. So, biblical vision, meaning all of the Bible, 
gospel purpose, we are on a gospel mission, okay? Um, We're led to a gospel purpose. So Jesus in the gospel appears to have three primary overlapping complementary activities for his disciples to participate in, drawing in, building up, and sending out. So you got two triads, right? Under the biblical vision of God, you've got the glory of God, the cross of Jesus, and transformation of life by the Spirit. Under the purpose of Jesus, we've got a triad. Drawing in, building up, and sending out. Okay? And those are complementary activities. They are not strictly, there is a a sequence to them, there is a priority to them. Obviously, you must be drawn in before you can be built up. And, um, but there is also some overlap that one of the best ways that Jesus built his disciples up was by sending them out on mission with him in the gospel. Um, let me give you, in regards to drawing in, let me give you two statements to kind of flesh out this drawing in. Number one, there's a blank to fill in there. Drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. Drawing in is not drawing people into a program. It's drawing them into salvation in Jesus. So your blank for that first statement is drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. John chapter 6. It's worth it for us to take a look at that. John 6 verse 44. You know these two verses well in John. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can diagram that. You can memorize it. And it's pretty simple, isn't it? You can't come to Jesus without God drawing you. And I'll raise him up on the last day. John chapter 6, verse 65. And he was saying this. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So again, what we're, talk- what we're not talking about is getting people to come to our, our worship service on Sundays. We're not trying to draw people in to attendance at church. We're not merely trying to draw people in to attendance at a, a, a ministry like this. We're not after programs for that sake to draw people in so that we feel better, so that we feel better about seeing a lot of people with us. But what we're talking about is sinners being savingly drawn into Christ through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should never be satisfied that people would show up and attend but not get saved. We should never be satisfied with that. If an unbeliever participates in any Sunday or any other thing that we might do or come to a small group, I would rejoice that an unbeliever would want to do that. And I would, I would be in turmoil in my heart if they continued to come and did not repent and believe. Because that's what God is after in drawing sinners to himself. We must labor in the gospel until they are savingly drawn in to Jesus Christ by God's grace. The second statement to flesh out is Jesus Christ crucified is God's unique object of attraction. Jesus crucified is God's unique object of attraction. And I would say his powerful object of attraction. His powerful object of attraction. John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. There's a condition for men being drawn to himself. What's the condition that must be met? Jesus must be lifted up. Your program being advertised on a billboard on a freeway is not the the condition that must be met for people to come or in the mail or whatever you might get. The condition that must be met Advertising is not a bad thing, by the way, necessarily. 
But if you're trying to prop something else up instead of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation and expiation and all the good stuff that happens, it's a bait and switch. And it's a powerless bait and switch because there's only one thing that has power to draw a sinner out of his deadness into new life. And it's Jesus crucified for forgiveness of sins. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of cross of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How does Paul refer to himself? I thought he was already saved. Why did he say, for those of us who are being saved? Is it, is it uncertain whether or not Paul's really saved? No, you see, just get used to the fact that the Bible talks about salvation how? Past tense, future tense, and even now. Okay. Verses 22 to 24, to those who are called, and this is in 1 Corinthians 1, to those who are called, Christ crucified is the power of God. Chapter 2, 1 to 5, you know this, your faith must not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God that is in the cross and the gospel. Practically speaking, using what, what do we do with this? You use what the Father and the Holy Spirit love to use to draw sinners to himself. If you are going to participate in God's drawing in ministry, Lift up before sinners what the Holy Spirit loves to use to save them. What does the Spirit of God love to use? The cross of Jesus. A penalty being paid by an innocent substitute. Who is Jesus for the atonement of sin? Practically speaking, think about in your life, what do you lift up in personal evangelism? Sometimes we, we, we do this with um, unbelievers in our lives. I, I remember doing this um, in the church, you can think programs. Programs is what we'll lift up. We'll get them to come. And as we see unbelievers coming, that makes us feel good. That's more about us than it is for them, I think, sometimes in the church. We lift up programs like a, like a marriage seminar that you open up to the neighborhood, the public that you live around, the community you live around. And unbelievers show up and you talk about marriage. Um, that's not a bad thing necessarily to do, but it is if what? You never get to the gospel. You never get to the gospel. The, the program does not have power. It might attract them. It might make them interested. They might be curious, but it has no power to change their life. Sometimes we do this on a personal level with just relationships. We, we befriend an unbeliever and we hang out with them and we, we want to identify with what they do. And so we attach ourselves to them and we, we, we take on their interests and we go to the things that they like and, and we get them to do that with us as well. And, and sometimes we can subtly doing, do it thinking that that kind of companionship has power. And it's powerless. That doesn't mean it's not important. It is important. But it's powerless to change life. You don't put your hope in the fact that you can become friends with sinners easily. What do you lift up in your evangelism? You lift up Jesus Christ crucified. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's just let Paul tell us what he, how he felt about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. Paul says, When I came to you on my missionary journey... Acts 18, brethren, I, I didn't come with you with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen, he had just gotten beaten in Philippi for that. And then he got chased out of Thessalonica. And then he got chased out of Berea. And then he was mocked in Athens. I mean, this guy, he, the only, he only knows one thing. He's not going to set up stuff that's not worth it to set up in front of sinners. 
He set up one thing and one thing only, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness. I was in fear. I was in trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why was all of that the case? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but your faith would rest on the power of God in the preaching of the gospel. As you reach out to unbelievers to see them be drawn in, ask yourself this crucial question. What does the Holy Spirit love to use to savingly draw in sinners to himself? It's the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. Building up. There are three overlapping complementary activities. There's drawing and let's talk about building up. Um, and I want you to understand the place of your personal edification, your personal being built up with the church, the, the body of Christ being built up. Okay? Uh, let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Verse 11. And... Jesus gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why did Jesus give to the church these gifted ones? Well, verse 12 of Ephesians 4, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's what he wants, the body of Christ being built up until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But instead, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. From whom, here's the verse I want to look at, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, the whole body causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I want you to be thinking about your, your, uh, what it means to be built up in Christ, but think about it biblically speaking. Um, and that's going to mean two things for you. It's going to mean that, yes, you personally must be built up. But if all you think about is you personally being built up, you are missing what Paul in the New Testament is after in regards to edification. It's about the body of Christ being built up. And that means that, yes, you personally must be built up. You are an individual member in the body, and you must function as you are supposed to function, but for a reason, so that all of the other parts that are connected to you and all of the other parts that are connected to them, as we all individually grow the way that we are supposed to, what happens to the whole body? The body grows. That's the point. That's what he's saying in verse 16. Here's the main clause in verse 16. The whole body, verse 16, dot, 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 main verb, causes. Causes what? Direct object. The growth. What kind of growth? The growth of the body. So get this. It's the body causing the growth of the body. All of that is from Jesus, verse 16. It's from him. We are the body. We are being fitted and held together. And where each one of us has a connection to another, there's a connection of supply, he says. And where your connection of supply is, that's when you as an individual member, you work according to your proper working. And when that happens, the body, which is being fitted, held together, causes, for the growth, the, causes the growth of the body. So the emphasis in the New Testament is on the body of Christ being built up. 
We as Christians tend to think of being built up as it's primarily an individualistic thing. It's just about me. I just got to be built up. Yes, you do. Don't stop thinking about that. What are we saying? Add to it what? Your life must be connected with the local church and this local church to help this body be built up. Okay? So, practically speaking, don't stop focusing on your own personal individual being built up. But expand it to think of what? The body of Christ. Make sure your life is in connection with other people. Are you in a small group yet? If you're newer to Grace Bible Church and you're not in a small group yet, will you talk to me and help? let me help you get in a small group so that your life can be put together with others in the body? Um, let's talk about sending out. This is the third primary overlapping complementary activity for disciples. Um, let's talk about the connection between drawing in, building up, and sending out. Obviously, when God draws in, it's only because he sent to them sent ones who did the drawing in. So drawing in and sending out are like two different sides of the same coin. You're being drawn in by God as sent ones are preaching the gospel to you. Okay? That's what happened in my life. Praise God for the ones that God sent into my life. Praise God for the ones that he sent into your life year after year and uh, month after month or maybe even just a stranger one time coming into your life and you hear the gospel and God saved you. Um, Now, be that sent one. Now, here's what I want you to see. I'm going to give you four statements to help flesh out this sending out thing. First off, we'll go through these quickly. God has always been a sending God. Here's another fun word to trace through as you read through your Bible. Look for the word sent. Now, look, you're going to come across a bunch of uh, times in the Bible when uh, David's father sent him to the front lines with cheese. Okay, maybe don't pay attention to that one as much. Uh, that's not the point. What I'm, what I'm looking for is, is, is like God sending or the son sending the spirit or the you look for the word sent and just watch for it and in particular watch for it in john we'll talk about that in a minute but god has always been ascending god how do you know uh he sent moses he sent isaiah he told jeremiah i send you he said to ezekiel i am sending you in john chapter one he sent john the baptist um so god has always been ascending god secondly jesus was sent by his sending father Right? Read through the Gospel of John. You will find the word sent or send 50 times occurring. I wonder what he's trying to say in 22 chapters. That's a major theme that's going on there. Read through the Gospel of John and trace that word used, send. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit was sent too. So God has always been ascending God. That Jesus was sent by the Father into the world to accomplish redemption. And then both Jesus and the Father send the Spirit. John 14, 26, the Father will send him in my name. John 15, 26, whom Jesus says, I will send to you from the Father. John 16, 7, I will send him to you. So let me, let me get this straight. God the Father, ascending God, God the Son, a sent one who sends the Spirit, the Spirit, a sent one of God. I wonder what that sending God does when he saves a sinner. I wonder what I will become in that sent one God. That's sending God. And you know what you become. In fact, Jesus makes this clear. Disciples of Jesus, the body of Christ, are sent ones. John 4.38, he told his disciples, I sent you into the world. That's his interaction with them after the woman at the well in Samaria. 
John 17, 18, in his prayer, uh, his high priestly prayer to his father on his last night, he says to the father, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. After he was crucified and raised from the dead, after his resurrection, um, he says that he sent them into the world. Matthew 9, verse 35 to chapter 10, verse 5, he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. You get to the book of Acts and you don't see the word sent so much, but the word you see instead of sent is witness. Testify of me. Everywhere you go, trace through the book of Acts. We're going to be starting back up in there again in October. Um, Go back through and refresh your memory and circle every time the word witness is used or testified is used. It's everywhere. That is your, one of your identities in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ, and part of that identity is you are a sent one for Jesus Christ in this world. You are a witness, one who is supposed to testify. So see yourself as a sent one wherever you live. That's what God is and does, and that's what you must be. Are you in school? God is sending you every day to school. Not primarily to get some knowledge about algebra or whatever, um, although I wish I could get my kids to want to learn algebra more. But, um, but he's sending you for his sake in the world. Maybe you're a mom and you're at home and you got little ones. Guess where God has sent you? It is glorious. He sent you into your household. And you've got captive little sinners that you can preach to all day long. Um, you're sent into the places that God has already positioned you. Your neighborhood, um, your extended family, your work, your school. You are sent into the ministries and the people in your church. You are sent more formally, perhaps, out into the world by your church. I mean, look, that is the genius of God's sending program. How do we, how do we make that any better? That would be like somebody saying, hey, you know what we should do? We should find a way where people actually every day of the week, except for Sunday, go to the same place over and over, and they live in the same place around the same people all the time. If we could program something like that where they would just see those same people over and over and have a context for a relationship as they're working and fulfilling the, the duty that they're supposed to do, wouldn't that be a brilliant idea if we could just come up with that kind of idea, implement it? Well, wait a minute. That's what God's already done. That is the best evangelistic program anybody could have ever done. The question is, are we taking advantage of it? Am I living? Do I see myself as a sent one out for Jesus into this world? So see the genius of God's evangelism program. Exploit the location God has you in. Exploit the pattern and the rhythm of life that he has for you. Take advantage of it. And even when something goes haywire in your life, I think of, I think of Jacob and Kiki. It's not, even, it's not haywire. But I think of the, the precious family like that who, whose child gets deathly sick they have lived as sent ones in the midst of that have they not grandma and grandpa i mean all god does is he just changes your ministry field to a bunch of nurses and doctors and hospital people and 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 you just it doesn't matter what happens in your life it doesn't matter if you get thrown into prison for the gospel now you have prison ministry it's glorious right you don't have to worry about any of that your identity fits wherever god puts you in this world okay so, the centrality in all three of these um, uh, complementary activities is the gospel. The gospel is, is, is central. What drawing in ministry happens without the gospel? None. What building up goes on in your life apart from the power of the gospel in your life? None. How can, if you're sent out without the gospel, what's the purpose? 
not, no purpose. The gospel is central in all of these. It is a gospel purpose. So there is the biblical vision of God and the gospel purpose of Jesus. What I want to talk about last, thirdly, is build wellspring and how that fits in with the vision and purpose of the church. So how to build, how do wellspring fit within all of that? Um, they stand really between the biblical vision and the gospel purpose. They stand in both of them, between them. They exist in one sense to help the men and women of our church become more consistent in their gazing upon the God of Scripture. If you get one thing from Build or Wellspring, it should be this. I need to come to the Word of God so that I can gaze upon the God of the Word and wonder and worship and be humbled and enjoy Him and fear Him and obey Him and delight in Him, etc. But then Build and Wellspring also exist to move the men and the women of Grace Bible Church into gospel action, into their homes, in their church family, and then even beyond the walls of Grace Bible Church. And these two ministries exist probably most clearly to build us up, to edify us uh, as believing men and women with uh, within that gospel purpose of Jesus Christ, believing men and women who have been drawn in by the power of the gospel into salvation in Jesus are now being built up through Build and Wellspring, all with a view of becoming effective sent ones in our homes and in our ministries where God has us. There's one kind of man or woman that God is looking for to send out into this world, and it has to be one who has been built up in Jesus Christ, and our prayer is that Build and Wellspring would do that in your life, would be a tool that God would use just to build you up in Christ so that you can be effective for him wherever he has you. Let me give you a brief word about how Build and Wellspring um, relate to other ministries in the church. Let me just put it this way. Build does not substitute for small group participation in the elder's mind. Uh, Wellspring does not substitute for a small group ministry in the elder's mind. Um, it, build and Wellspring, what they accomplish in you, actually help enhance your participation in your small group. So again, if you're not involved in a small group yet, I'd love to help you do that. Build and Wellspring um, do not function as your place of service in the body. We want you to serve in the body. Tom was telling me yesterday, Tom Eng said, um, that in the near future, 18 people will be stepping out of Next Generation Ministries. Um, six of them will, Lord willing, be going to Papua New Guinea. Um, but we have a bunch of other pregnant moms and, and things like that going on. And... Um, so 18 people need to somewhere from the body be able to step in just to maintain where we're at. Um, not to mention the fact that more children are coming. Um, what's the number now, Eric? How many from grade five down? 190? Is that right? 190 kids from grade five to birth. On a given Sunday over there, now there's an overlap in numbers. There's 350 to 360 people that might come on a good Sunday. Some of that 190 are in there. But we need you, if this is your church home um, and you're involved in, in building Wellspring and you are in the process of getting connected to a small group, we, we need you. This body needs you. And we want you to serve in those places. This does not substitute for service in the body. Um, the second question, how to build in Wellspring build up the believing men and women of the church? There are three basic core disciplines that we go over. Um, men, you have six total. Women, you have only the three core spiritual ones. And I'll explain that to you guys a little bit later. Um, I want to describe them to you first without giving you their, their names. I just want to talk about them in general because I think it's kind of a helpful to do that. The first discipline is all about how you as a believer worshipfully pursue God through his word. 
That first discipline is all about how you worshipfully pursue God through his Bible. Okay, that's what we're after there. Um, Your interaction with the Bible must be nothing short of worship. It must be nothing short of an expression of a loving pursuit of Jesus Christ, an expression of need for Jesus, a, a desire to want to know him better. That's why you're coming to the Bible. And that is a discipline. You don't just wake up. Anybody notice this? You don't just wake up and all of a sudden realize, oh, I woke up reading the Bible. Isn't that crazy? It's just a reflexive thing. I didn't even have to try to do it. Um, And just throughout the day, I just automatically start thinking about the Bible. Isn't that crazy? No, that's called heaven. And we're not there yet. It's a discipline now. It is a discipline now. You've got sin dragging on you in your body, but now by the power of the Spirit, you're no longer a slave to that sin. You can fight against its entanglements, and you must discipline yourself to get your sorry carcass out of bed in the morning and read the Bible and pray and then do it again later and do it again. It's a discipline. It takes discipline to ensure that even when your Bible is open, that you're actually in a worshipful condition as you do it. Because you can read this, close it, and walk away and go, wait a minute, what did I just read? We don't want that. We don't just want the Bible open. We want a worshipful interaction with God in the Bible. So that's what this is all about. And it's not safe to simply assume that because you're a Christian and you go to church and because your Bible is open before you that you will automatically be a worshiper of Jesus, a lover of Jesus in that moment. The first spiritual discipline is foundational to your being built up in Christ. Look, how is it possible to be built up in Jesus Christ if, you are not a, if you're not worshipfully pursuing him through the word of God? How is that possible? It's not possible. The second core spiritual discipline within Build and Wellspring is purpose, purposefully impacting your household relationships first as one who loves the word of God and the God of the word. So becoming a woman or a man who thirsts for God in and through his word, that should impact first those people that you live with in your household. Uh, They should feel the impact of your worshipful pursuit of God through his word before anybody else in the world does because God puts you with them. Are you a son or a daughter? Are you still a kid living at home? Well, listen, your siblings need you to be, um, they need to catch the aroma of worship and love for Jesus Christ that's coming off of your heart and your pursuit of him. So I don't care how old you are, if you're a believer in Jesus and you're still living at home, it's time for you to turn the corner and become a part of, of the gospel effect and change that needs to take place in your family. Are you a single man or a single woman living with roommates? Well, listen, change the way you view your roommates. Change the way you view your household and see the souls of the people that you live with as those souls which you must impact for Jesus' sake. You know what it's hypocritical to do? It's hypocritical. Guys, I'll, I'll, I'll single you out. You single guys? If you're out living out there with roommates and you pay no attention to them? Um, it's hypocritical to show little to no care for your roommates while single, all while you're trying to persuade your fiancé that you'll be different than that when she becomes your roommate. Okay? It's just, it doesn't work that way. And same thing, gals, for you if you're living out with each other in a, and you're not paying attention to each other well, you're not caring for each other. The first thing I'm going to ask a single guy who's living with his roommates, and um, he, he's interested in my daughter when she's 30, the first thing I'm going to say... <laughs> The first thing I'm going to say is, what's your roommate's number? I want to know what your roommate's number is. Well, why do you want to know that? Because I want to know what you're like. I want to know how he's being cared for by you. Uh, well, we, we never see each other. 
And you want my daughter to become your roommate? I don't think so. Um, so that's not the first thing I'm going to do, but Tim's going to have to calm me down. <laughs> One of the greatest problems in the local church is the devastating spiritual game of leapfrog that men primarily, but women too, play over their households. There are men leaping over their wives and their children to get to more important things. Wives leaping over their husbands and children to pour themselves out for other stuff that's going on. Listen, with a heart that is eager to worshipfully draw near to God and his word, seek to bring your life up close and personal to those you live with in your household. That's the second core discipline. The third core discipline within Build and Wellspring then makes sense. At that point, if you're doing that, if you're that kind of a person, now you're ready to minister to other people outside of your household, in the body of Christ, and outside of the church. As one who is worshipfully and lovingly, desperately pursuing God through his word, and, and as one who is caring well for those who are within your household, listen, your ministry to other people outside of your household, uh, it, that's when it has its strongest integrity. Do you understand that? Now there's integrity in your life. One of the worst mistakes a church can make is simply to assume that believers do this, that they're not disciplines, that they're re reflexes. This just reflexively happens. And it's not. These are all disciplines. When do you wake up just feeling like, man, I just woke up and I found myself just caring for my family with a joyful heart and well-equipped by God's word to do it. Look, you have to discipline yourself to be able to do that. Every single one of these. Don't make the assumption that it's just happening because you're a Christian. What have you seen all too often in a local church? A young man shows promise, he shows energy, he shows sharpness, he shows the ability to communicate, he shows the ability to lead, people follow him, and so the church is desperate for help. They put him in a leadership position, and time reveals that about all that he was was a man of energy. His discipline with the word of God was weak. He leapfrogged over his family and he poured himself out into the ministry of the church. And then the church is left scratching its head, wondering what went wrong when his ministry imploded or exploded. And now they're trying to help him preserve his marriage. The titles we give to these three, now that I've talked about them in general, discipline one is the heart, discipline two is the home, discipline three is the ministry. And there's an order there marked by priority, but not necessarily sequence. You, it's not like you shepherd your heart, and then we give you a little graduation diploma, and you never have to worry about that again, like first grade, and you go on to second grade. And No, you're constantly working on these things. There's an order of priority, but it's not strictly sequential. You're never going to get to be able to care for people in your home with the heart that is of the standard that you want it to be. It's always going to be something that you're going to have to work on in regards to your heart. Now... Third question, why discipline one? Why the emphasis upon the heart? Um, why does that one come first? If you're a man or a woman who's full of worship of God and love for God, and the word of God is your lifeline connection to God every day, it, it doesn't matter wherever you are, it doesn't matter what you do, you'll be the right kind of person for the moment. That doesn't mean you'll be perfect. It doesn't mean you'll be flawless. It doesn't mean you won't sin. But you'll be the right kind of person that God wants to put in the place that he has you. Everything in your life, to put it negatively, becomes hollow and empty if you are not seeking to fill your life up with God through the word. You'll be a hollow, empty man or woman of God. What do we mean by heart exactly? What does the Bible mean by the word heart? It's this. It's who you are inwardly before God. 
heart in Scripture is who you are inwardly before God. It's the inner man or the inner woman before God. First Peter 3, 4, in regards to the women, says that it's the hidden person of the heart. Take away the physical body, and guess what? You still exist in heart form. You do. In an inner man. The inner man or woman is housed within your body, but it's not dependent upon the body for existence. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Paul says, Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And eventually you'll be separated from the body and you'll be at home with the Lord. What is your heart? Your heart is you inwardly speaking before God. What your heart is not, your heart is not a piece of you. It is not a portion of who you are. It is not merely where your emotions lie. Like when people say, you know, put some heart into it. It's not that. So what we aim for in Discipline 1 is what we call shepherding your heart. Shepherding your inner man or woman before God. Shepherding you. Shepherding your inner woman, inner man before God. Primarily, you are leading your inner person to the Word of God to worshipfully and lovingly meet with God, Jesus, and the Spirit of God. The whole reason that you can even do this spiritual discipline of shepherding your inner man or woman to know the Word of God and know the God of the Word is because God has saved you. It's because God has saved you. You are in a condition in which you can do this now as a believer. You can now, get this, you can now lead you to God in worship. You can now control you. You have self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. You can now tell yourself what to think and not just listen to what comes out in your head all the time. You can tell yourself what to think. You could not do that before. You'll spend much of the rest of the year working on this, but let me contrast this a little bit before you. Before God saved you, before you repented and believed, you were, uh, before you were ever united with Christ crucified, your inner man, your inner woman was dead before God in sin, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. At that inner man level, the Bible says you were only one thing. You were all united in sin against God. This is an unmixed condition over here. Your mind was united with your flesh, which was united with your indwelling sin, which was united with your heart, which was united with all of your members of your body, and all of it was united in an unmixed rebellion against God. In that condition, you had no capacity to shepherd your heart toward God, nor did you have any desire to do so. That was an unshepherdable condition, an unmixed in sin condition. Now, let's move forward. Let's skip us right now. Let's go to heaven, right? Let's think about that. God saves a sinner, and one of the great benefits to come is the hope of heaven for the believer. There, the body will be separated from the inner man, and that inner man condition will then be also unmixed in what? Holiness and righteousness. There will be no trace anywhere in the heart of sin in heaven. That is also an unmixed condition that does not need to be shepherded away from sin to God because you are constantly in the presence of Jesus. So get this, before Christ in your life, you were in a most horrible, 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 unmixed condition. In heaven, you will be in the most glorious, glorious, unmixed condition. But what are you right now? You're in a mixed condition. You've got indwelling sin still hanging on you. But 
you have the power of God in the spirit in a new creation that has been given to you, a new man with equipping from God. And new, you've got new desires for Jesus and a sensitivity and awareness to sin that you never had before you were saved. You've got that, and then you still crave sin sometimes. What should you do in that mixed condition? Discipline one. You must control yourself. You must lead yourself. You must discipline yourself. You must shepherd your inner man to the word of God to keep your relationship going with the God of the word. Not because you might lose it, but because sin makes you drift from him. Your condition right now in Christ is a mixed condition. You still have the drag of sin on you. There's a turmoil within you. Look, there's no fight in the man who is without Christ. No fight within for God. In heaven, there's no fight against sin in that condition. Right now, guess what the Christian life is? It's a fight. It's a fight. It's a battle. Paul talks that way, does he not? It's a fight for obedience to Jesus Christ. It's a fight against sin in your life. Imagine if you didn't shepherd your inner man each day to the word of God and the gospel of God. Do you know what that would be like? That would be like stepping into a boxing arena. You've got gloves, but you didn't bring them. And you step into a boxing arena against a vicious opponent, and you're about to get clocked. It'd be like stepping onto the battle zone without any plan, without any protection, without any weaponry to defend yourself. It'd be foolish. So this is why discipline one, the heart, is primary. The Christian life, in so many ways, it hangs on this spiritual discipline of you being a man or a woman who will come to the Word of God to drink in the glory of God and the cross of Jesus Christ so that your life will continue to change by the power of the Spirit and so that you can participate in the gospel purpose of Jesus Christ in your life. You must come here to meet with this God. If you don't do that, you're stepping onto the battlefield and you're going to be toast. Last question. What is the history behind Building Wellspring? We did this 10 years ago. We started this with the men. Um, and our thought, our intent at the beginning was that build out of, that would be the primarily one machine out of which even elders would come someday. And what we found out is that build does some things really well and it wasn't able to do other things very well at all. And so build is primarily, we, we just let it do what it does well. And that is it disciples men and women or the men in build to in this first discipline, the spiritual discipline of just trying to become a godly man through the word of God. Um, we did that for years and the men, as they stepped into their families, uh, were a blessing to their wives and to their, their kids. And then the ladies, uh, five years ago, we started asking, well, why don't we do a companion ministry like that for the, for the women of the church? And we called it Wellspring after Proverbs 4.23. Um, to watch over the heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the springs of life. And so, women, you have a unique ministry with one another, not um, primarily from Titus 2, chapter, uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, where you have a unique ministry that's been given to you by God for how you care for one another. Um, you have the same focus, the heart, the home, and the ministry. And you have older women in the church who are coming alongside you to help train the younger women that you might be a woman whose heart is full of God in the word of God, because then you can step into your household and you can make an impact. Um, so that's the history behind them. And um, I think that's it. Pardon? Oh, it's a reading plans. Oh, I'm so sorry.
Yes, you have reading plans. Your primary um, responsibility, if I could borrow it, yeah. the main homework that you have in Build and Wellspring is primarily to um, read the Bible in a year. That's the main one. However, I think it's in your first section. Is that right? Yeah. If you look in your notebook under Discipline 1, The Heart, you'll find reading plans at the end of it. We want you primarily to, uh, in Wellspring and Build, to be on a plan where you are planning to engage your heart with the Word of God throughout the course of the year. That reading is not just something you'll spontaneously do. Please, spontaneously read the Bible. But plan. Make a plan that you're going to read through the Bible. Set a goal. Uh, the big picture that we're aiming at is we want you to try to read through the Bible in a year. For some of you, that might be a bite that's way too big to, to take. If you haven't been doing a lot of reading, you can easily and quickly get discouraged because you did not... Look, if you're going to read through the Bible in a year, it's going to mean about three or four chapters a day. Miss three days of that reading and you're nine to twelve chapters behind. You feel like it... You just want to dig a hole, get in there and pull the dirt over the top of your head. I mean, it's discouraging. So what we wanted to do this year is I provided for you in your um, notebook in this year's. If, if you did not, if you're using a notebook from past years, I need to make sure I get this to you. So make sure you see me. But there is a, um, a reading plan that we came up with where you can set your own reading plan. For instance, you could take the Gospel of John and say, I'm going to read the Gospel of John in, let's see, there's 22 chapters. I'm going to read the Gospel of John in 22 days sharp guy. I can do that. One chapter a day, I'm going to write the date down, I'm going to put the passage that I read, and I'm going to check off that it's completed, just to provide myself a little bit of accountability. And you see, the plan is that you'll be on a daily consistent reading. So the ultimate goal that we want at one level is we want you to read through the Bible, but the, the goal that's even above that is when you are interacting with the Bible, you must interact with the God of the Bible. And if, you, if it helps you to start slower, easier, and, and take a book. Look, you can divide it up however you want. If you want to read the Gospel of John in 44 days, do it in 44 days. But make it, make it a plan, and go for it. And then when you're done doing that, I'm always going to put down here, upon the completion of this plan, create another one, or is it time to read through the Bible in a year? I'm trying to gear you up, get you strengthened to be able to read through the Bible in a year. Man, I'll just say this to you. You need to be reading through the Bible every year for the rest of your life, at least once a year, if you can you need to be that kind of man. Because I'll guarantee you this. If your kids haven't already come to you and asked you questions about somebody, and you're like, who's that? I'm like, Patty's in the Bible. Oh, I knew that. Yeah, yeah, I knew that. Um, you're going to need that. And you need to, if you're going to be in any kind of leadership in the church, you need to be aware of the Bible from front to back. All my ladies are here. Welcome. Good to see you. Um, Sarah, right over there, Sarah and I are so thrilled to be here today to start Wellspring. We're so glad you are all here, and we're just so thankful um, to get to serve you as leaders in Wellspring. There's a seat right here. Come on up. Now, I see those little speech bubbles going, Where? why is Sarah not up here, right? You're asking, well, Sarah is going to be overseeing teaching, and she's overseeing the homework, and I'm going to be helping out with the discussion group care, 
and I'm going to be helping out with administrative details. But there are so many others of you that are helping as well, and I'll introduce you in a minute. But just please remember we're both here. We're here to serve you. We're here to pray for you. We're here to answer questions. If we don't know, we'll find out for you. And we're just here to come alongside you the next nine months. And we're very excited about that. So with that in mind, um, let's begin our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh, how grateful we are to be here. Thank you for each and every woman who has made the commitment to be in Wellspring this year. Thank you for what you will be teaching us, how we will be growing. Lord, we give you this year, we lay it before you, and we ask for your help each and every moment. Now, please help us to listen well and just to make the most of this time that we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, ladies, we just got the fire hose. If this is the first time you've been um, to one of these build and wellspring things, there's a lot that you learned. So I'm going to keep it kind of light this morning, okay? I'm going to go over some of the typical things, first of all, that will happen each Saturday that we're here in wellspring. First of all, Scott said wellspring starts at 7, but I want to really implore you do not be pulling up into the parking lot at 7, right? You'll want to be here in your seats at 7. We really want to respect the time you are going to be here at 7. You'll leave at 9. We want to respect that and get you out of here at 9. So right at 7 we'll start. So come a little early. There'll be snacks here and they'll be at this table who's going to bring them? Well, we get to do that. We'll get to um, have snacks together. Celeste, you want to wave? She's got a sign-up sheet. I had a really pretty pink clipboard. It's probably at home on my counter. (laughs) But we're going to pass that sign-up sheet around. Um, There's some sticky notes with it. If you want to put the date that you sign up, that would be great. Um, But just sign your name. We've got a place for two people to do a snack. And then if you'd like to bring a drink, Celeste had that idea. And I think that's a really great idea if you want to bring a drink instead. Anyway, all the information is on that sign-up sheet. And Celeste will email you to remind you when it's your turn. How good is that? Um, Yes, Sarah. Yes. Scott Maxwell is going to be making um, Starbucks coffee, so that is there for us every time. So thank you very much to Scott for that. Um, Every time we meet, now we're going to meet right here, the door, um, there's uh, double glass doors over there. Those will be unlocked, so you can park right there and just come on in through the double glass doors. Make your way over here, and we'll have an attendance sheet. Please get in the habit of uh, looking for that and signing your name. Just put a little check mark by your name. Please do that every time. Some of you did it today, but we, we saw you and we put it there. And wear your name tag. Now, I have to confess, I'm really, really bad 
at names. I'm great at faces, but if you see me looking at you like, you know, and as you're coming down the hall, I'm just praying, oh Lord, bring to mind who that name is. Who is that person? I'm very bad. So this helps me. Please um, try to remember to wear your, your name tag. And what I do is I just stick it in my binder, stick it in the front pocket, and that way I don't have to hunt for it when I'm on my way. And then um, we'll start at 7, as I said. We'll even get a little bathroom break. And then at 8.30, we'll go into our discussion groups. And I'll tell you more about that later. And at 9 o'clock, you can get on your way. So let's just have a quick show of hands. We had that in the big room, but I was sitting in the front row and it was hard for me to see. How many of you, brand new, brand brand new to Wellspring, this is your first time? Could I see who you are? Wow, isn't that great? Look around. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. How about the alumni? Who, who's been here one time? One time in Wellspring. Great. Two times. Three times. Yay. And all four years, I think Sarah and I, anyone else? I I get you do. You do, yeah. (laughs) Um, Jamie over here. Jamie, welcome. Jamie's our Thursday. She's been Thursday, Wellspring. What a great opportunity they have over there to minister to the ladies who can't come on on Saturdays and the ones that have little kids that get to be in Wellspring Kids. So we're glad you're here. You'll be seeing Jamie. She'll she'll be teaching us um, a couple times, maybe. Yeah, excited for that. Well, for those of you brand new, again, let me explain what's going to happen this year. So exciting. Wellspring, it's really a twofold purpose. We get to be equipped and we get to be encouraged. How great is that, right? We get to be equipped and encouraged to shepherd our hearts towards Jesus with the Word of God so that we can live gospel-transformed lives. And then we can strengthen the church and its gospel purpose. Isn't that exciting? So that's why you can take Wellspring again and again and again because every time you take it you'll get something new out of it more equipping more encouraging more equipping more encouraging sisters let's remember that it's all of us who are laboring right as sisters in Christ we're all laboring um, to be women who meet with God in his word who are growing in our love for him and we're growing in our dependence on him And that's why Sarah and I are so, so glad that you're here. So right here in Wellspring, we're going to be equipped and we're going to be encouraged through many different ways. One of them is the reading plan that Scott talked about. That's helping us have our daily time in the Word. Then we're going to have our lessons. Those will help us grow in our love for God. We're going to get to meet in our discussion groups. And then we're always going to have homework as well. There's much more, but I'm not going to tell you yet. That'll be in the weeks to come. But the first three equipping tools I want to talk about today are the song books, the gospel primers, and your notebook or your binder. So let's talk about the song books first. If you were in Wellspring last year or the year before, 
you got one of these. Now, Jamie put these beautiful notebooks together, designed it, ta-da, the whole thing, beautiful. And these are a tool to help you grow in your love for God. And so how you use the songbooks, um, use them how you like, but the way I like to use it is before I open my Bible, as I'm preparing my heart to come before the Lord to meet with him, I'll read um, one of the songs in here. I'll read it out loud. I read it to my husband. And instead of singing, there's something really special about reading, about taking the time to slow down and read those songs that we sing. For instance, here's the song, No Other Savior. We've sung this in church a lot. But listen as I slowly read the words to you. Lord of every age, author of our faith, the first, the last, the same, the name above all names, crowned in majesty, glorious, Prince of Peace, throned at God's right hand, the world at his command, the world at his command. Jesus, Lamb of God, how great you are. There is no other Savior. Every knee bows down at your renown. There is no other Savior. Merciful High Priest, lover of the least. Generous and meek protector of the weak sacrificed to death for us your final breath to overcome the grave or you died the world to save to overcome the grave to overcome the grave you will reign forever you will reign forever see how that helps You've got yourself in a proper um, mindset, and now you go into the Word. Continue and worship that way. Um, Carla Walker, can you raise your hand? There you are. Carla is going to give you a songbook, and she's going to give you also a, um, a little bookmark. So if you don't have one, I was going to have her pass them out now, but how about um, you just go see Carla at the end as we go to our our, um, discussion groups. I think we'll do that. Carla will have um, these songbooks for you today, and if you forget, you'll get it next time. Another tool that I want to talk to you about, and this is optional. This is something, it's for sale, it's $8. We would love for each of you to purchase one. Oh, here are these Um, beautiful bookmarks that you're going to get today. This is called the Gospel Primer, and it is on sale for $8. We'll have these available for a couple months. If you forget to buy one or can't get one now, they're also at the book table. We'd love for you to have one of these in your hand as well. I'll just read the back of this so you get an idea what it says. It says that Um, Christians need to hear the gospel, even after conversion. And a gospel primer is designed to help you do just that. By showing how you can preach the gospel to yourself each day, this book will help you savor the glories of God's word, the glories of God's love, and experience the life-transforming power of the gospel in all areas of life. Use this book to preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis and be amazed at the difference it can make in your life. 
Well, this morning, Scott talked to us about the vision and purpose of Grace Bible Church and the goals that Wellspring and Build play. uh, play. So we're going to start with the name Wellspring. So if you take your binders, please, let's take a look at Wellspring. Wellspring is a nine-month commitment. Scott already mentioned that. We're going to take it as serious commitment. That means that you're going to try to come to each and every lesson as much as it can depend on you. And as much as it depends on you, you're going to be on time. That means for me, I have to put all my stuff in the car the night before. Make sure that alarm clock is set. Don't go crazy Friday night, right? Um, Now, illnesses are going to happen. We know that. Travel plans happen. We know that. If you miss, we want you to come back. I want you here as much as can be. We want you, though, to be here in May. So please try to make that commitment. It's not on your own strength. Remember that. We need to pray right now and ask God to help us to commit and follow through and be here so that uh, February, when it's cold and dark and rainy, it's raining a lot in February and January, and it's so warm in your bed, you will make the effort because you said, I committed, I'm going to be here. So, as much as it depends on you, please be consistent and participate in all that Wellspring has to offer in the teaching, in the discussion time, and in the homework. Now, if you miss, here's the good news. You can hear online. Allie will send you the link. She always does. She'll say, here it is. It's online. You can click on the link and you can listen. And you can also download and print out the notes and the homework. And also, Carla will have all the back homeworks and notes in case something happens to your printer and you can't get to it. She, she has those extra ones. And you're free to use those or to ask her for that. Well, let's look at, at your binder. Let's look at the front. You have our, we have our verse under the word wellspring, and it says, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Well, we hear that word wellspring so often, don't we? But have you ever thought, what exactly does that mean, wellspring? Well, what it means is that it's the head or the source of a spring or of a river. It's like a fountainhead. It's the unseen source. And remember Proverbs 4.23, what it says about the heart? Take a look. It says that it is the wellspring of life. So guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So that means that everything that comes out of us flows from the heart, right? And what is the heart, remember? It's that inner man without the body. It's all that you are before the Lord. And then take a look at this picture. It's great. It's beautiful, but it's more than that. Do you see how the water is pouring into water is pouring into water? I love that. Well, that just shows us that it's a ministry to women. And Scott mentioned Titus 2. And it's the idea of one generation of women pouring into the other, pouring into the other, pouring into the other. So it reminds us of the responsibility that we have with one another. How crucial it is that we guard 
our hearts above all else so that what we get to pour into each other is good and pure and true and most importantly it's grounded in God's word so let's turn to the back we're going to do this every single week it's so important now we've already talked about the purpose and how we're going to get to be equipped and encouraged so quickly the disciplines Scott talked about them he talked about number one the heart and that means we are worshipers of God it means we should remember that each time we open our Bible something important needs to happen remember worship needs to happen and then our homes it means that the first people that we impact by our love and worship for the Lord are the people in our homes if we're single the people that come into our homes our household needs to see that we are worshipers worshipers of God that our Bible is open that we're thinking about the Bible and that when we speak to each other it's from the Bible from what we've read we're ready to speak God's Word to everyone and then naturally flowing out of that will be discipline three because when I've sought God in his word and I'm making an impact on the household it's only natural I'll make an impact on others for the gospel remember integrity when you have integrity there's everything is woven through is solid and strong we want like rebar in a home we want our lives to be full of integrity don't we don't we I sure do well guess what newsflash just like Scott said this takes discipline hey that's why we call them what the disciplines right because it doesn't just happen it takes discipline prayer and planning to open the word and to be in it every day and to care for our households and to care for the people with the gospel so lastly these disciplines remember Scott said it's not like grade one two and three we never graduate from discipline one we work on all three all the time let's take a look at the inside of your binder inside we have our schedule and you'll see the heart the heart encouraging women the heart you'll see how it's all um, laid out and cycles through very special we're going to get to talk about the heart a lot the next page we have our contact information um, that's how you get in, ch uh, in touch with Sarah and me and then midweek they have the information there everything you need is there and then you have these tabs you have the outlines and that's where you can put what we wrote today that's where you put all of your outlines but please don't do that right now because it makes a, a sound on the recording but that's where you'll keep that and then homework is your next tab homework is always going to be on colored paper and that's where you'll stick your homework when you after you get it back from your discussion leader and then you have a lot of resources here's where you're going to find those Bible reading plans that Scott talked about there are other 
Um, things in the resources, other pages will talk about those as the year progresses. But real quickly, I want to encourage you with these Bible reading plans. This is so fun. Now you get to go home and you get to look at each and every plan and decide what are you going to do. We want you to have a plan and start it by October 1st. So you have a little time to check it out. I might encourage you, if you've never done a Bible reading plan before, I might encourage you to try one day, see if that, if you like that, try another one, see if you like that, because you see they all have a little different emphasis. For instance, the chronological plan takes you chronologically through the history, how it happens, so you might be reading something happened in David's life, and then you might go to the Psalms and read what he wrote as that happened. The thing you need to remember for that one, though, is that you're in the Old Testament a long time. So that's something to keep in mind. However, I think that's very valuable to do this one at least once in your lifetime. You have the 52-week Bible reading plan next that takes you through. You see it, the epistles, the law, history, etc. You have the McShane's is next, and that has you reading in four different places every day. That's a big commitment. Some of you can do it. Some of you are not in the season of life where you can make that big of a commitment. Um, now, it has the purposes for family and private. I just do all of it. I just do both family and private together with my husband, but we do that one. Um, then there's the Bible uh, reading plan, Old and New Together. You see that. And then last, there is the reading through in... I'm sorry, that's not the last one, I don't think. But that's the one Scott talked about where you're making your own plan. And then you have the discipleship reading. And that's, um, that gives you a little bit of a cushion because you have some days off. So in case you need to catch up or you want to spend extra time doing uh, your small group lesson or Bible study, that one might be one you want to consider. Anyway, have fun. Uh, there's the blue letter Bible one too. So have fun. Yes, Sarah? Okay, thank you for mentioning that. So for those of you listening online, um, the 52 or the two-year, the, the blue letter is the two-year plan. And that might fit well with some of you who cannot make it through in a year. Um, and then we have some resources there for you to look at later. But I want to quickly wrap up by just encouraging you to pick a plan and stick with it. There's so much more that I could say, but I won't for the sake of time. You see, ladies, but just the more we feed on the word, the sweeter it becomes. It, the sweeter it becomes. So let's talk quickly about the homework. That is your blue, I think it's blue today. Your homework will have, pretty consistently it'll be like this, you'll have a looking back section and that's where you're going to uh, reflect and apply the teaching that you just heard. 
So when you get home, I, I recommend you do this part quickly. You don't have to do it all like right away, but I like to do this one either Saturday or Sunday after the lesson because it's fresh. I like to look over the notes. I personally like to do that one right away. And then you have the day by day, which uh, is an ongoing encouragement as we persevere in meeting with God in his word through Bible reading. Then on you've got the um, looking ahead section, which is on our second side, and you have it there on the bottom. That is in preparation for the lesson that you will hear next time you come. And sometimes you're going to have a looking deeper, and that's just digging deeper into a particular topic that is helpful for heart shepherding. So you see the goal of the homework Okay, think of the goal of the homework. It's not just to put answers down, but it's to remember we're going to be equipped and encouraged. So this helps equip us and encourage us to be thinking and to be applying what we're learning. Not up here. It's going to make the 18-inch journey, right? It's going to be on a, on a heart level, deep inside us who we are before God. It's on a heart level. So think, be thoughtful. It helps if you put this homework somewhere where you you see it so Friday night doesn't come and you're, you're scrambling. That does happen. But that's not ideal, is it? It's more ideal if you take your time through the two weeks and get it done however, however you can. Homework really matters, ladies. And then you get to give your homework to your discussion leader. And your discussion leader gets to be encouraged and gets to pray for you. She's going to give it back. And I always love to get my homework back because Sarah was my discussion leader one year. And oh, she would write me the sweetest notes of encouragement. And that meant a lot to me, knowing that she is praying for me. And your discussion leader is praying for you and is encouraged by you by what you write. Ladies, if you've been through Wellspring before, some of these questions you've seen before, please, you've grown, right? Things have changed. Do it again with fresh eyes as to what your life is like right now. Do it again and hand it in. Let's talk about discussion groups. We get to meet on a small, tight, individual, really cozy level every time after group. And we're going to do that in just a minute. We're going to get to care for each other, talk about these, do so much more. It's going to be really rich, and I'm excited to get started. So let's conclude. Wellspring. We basically have two components. We have our time together, and then we have your alone. So let's talk about together. Together, the together component has two pieces. We're going to be together in the teaching and learning about our disciplines and the purpose. And we're going to be together in the lesson and then in fellowship in our discussion groups for a time of encouragement. And then we have the on your own, and that has two components. You've got your reading plan, meeting with God in his word every day. And you've got your homework assignment. And so we are going to get to meet in our discussion groups in just a minute. And I'm going to tell you who they are and where you're going to meet. But what I'd like to do first is just pray 
and then I'll tell you who your discussion groups are and I'll send you on your way and discussion group leaders will dismiss you and we'll um, go back and those of you helping clean up, thank you for that. We'll go back in Barnes Hall at 9.15 and the rest of you will see um, in a couple weeks and don't forget to get your books or your um, song books please from Carla. But let's pray and then we'll do our discussion groups. Father God, we are so dependent on you, and we need to be that way. We ask, we beg that you help strengthen our hearts and challenge us. We need to be challenged to grow deeper, to learn how to shepherd our hearts through every circumstance that you have planned for us to happen, that we will open our Bibles and worship you and learn about you in new ways, Lord, as we meet with you in the word every day, that we will make much of Jesus, our Savior, in our lives, and finally that we will display the gospel to a lost world that desperately needs to hear the hope that we have in Christ. And so we ask that you help us do that, and we thank you that you promise you will. In Jesus' name, amen.